Good morning, and welcome to episode 464 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. As promised, we're going to do a draft show today, probably two days of draft shows, and amateur prospects are not our specialty, so we have brought in someone who's been covering the draft exhaustively for Baseball Prospectus now for for months, really, and ramping up particularly lately, uh, Nick Folaris. And, uh, well, first of all, welcome, Nick. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So you have been pumping out these positional previews with uh, in-depth scouting reports and video on just, you know, every player of interest in in the draft, which starts tonight and continues for the next couple days. And and to find your coverage at BP, we, we put up a, a draft index at the top of the page that, that links to all the stuff you've done. Um, and, you know, hopefully, unlike the, the mock draft sort of thing, which, which we've also published courtesy of, of Perfect Game, but that's the kind of thing that, that doesn't really last. It's not really of interest beyond, beyond the first round. Once we know who went where, we don't need to read those predictions anymore, but the the stuff that you have done over the past weeks and months is is something that people can refer to after the draft for for years going forward if they want to find out about these players and and what these players were. So, uh, you you have recorded snippets about players that that will be playing on MLB Network Radio, and you'll be chatting at Baseball Prospectus today and and during the draft. And so, thank you for for coming on to uh, to share your expertise and also doing so at the site. So. So you sent an email earlier today that that I was uh, copied on, and I thought it was interesting that you had you had done some work on sort of valuing where picks will go, and and you came to some conclusions about the depth of this class. So can you explain what you did and and what you have discovered? Sure. So basically, when uh, to take a step back, when an area scout submits a report on a player. Uh, at least for the organization that I worked with uh, prior to joining to uh, BP, you submit a player not with a round in mind, but with a price tag in mind. So you say, this guy is a, you know, a $400,000 kid for me. And that generally indicates, you know, about what round you would recommend drafting that player. But it could also mean if that player slips in the draft, you know, I'd be willing to go up to this amount, which may be over slot to sign that player. So I, that's the practice I've gotten into is basically identifying draft talent by more by price tag than by round. And the way this, the process works for me, I uh, completely separate from looking at what the actual slot values are. I take a look at, you know, about 150 to 180 uh, prospects that I find interesting or that I, I would think would be draft worthy. And I assign a price tag to those players uh, line them all up, and then I, using you know just a basic chart uh, on Excel, I'll graph both the slots and the um, the price tag players in order, and just see how they match up. And generally, how this works is there's more money available in the draft than there is value on the player side, meaning teams have more money to play with than they do um, valuable items to go bid on. 
or I guess not bid on, but to, to spend on. Uh, and this this class is is, is unique in that, um, <laughs> pretty remarkably, my uh, my value line matched up, you know, within a couple hundred thousand dollars up top, and then within you know a couple tens of thousand dollars down past the one hundred uh, to about one twenty five range, almost exactly with the uh, with the slot. And so what that means is. It's an incredibly deep draft, first of all. And second of all, um, you're going to have a chance, using my own valuation as an example of you know what an, what an actual organization might be doing, you're going to have a chance to draft either at slot or above slot um, someone who's more valuable than the slot that you're actually picking at, if that makes sense. So even if everyone were to come off the board exactly as I have them ranked, which isn't going to happen... Um, the guy who's left is going to be someone who's worth the money that I'm going to be paying him. And that, that's pretty remarkable. That almost never happens in the draft and certainly doesn't happen going all the way down to the third or fourth round. Uh-huh. And where are the strengths, positionally speaking, as you see it? So the biggest depth is on the high school pitching side, primarily right-handed pitchers. Um, college pitching is very strong as well, although it's taken a big hit with injuries, uh, most notably Obviously, Jeff Hoffman, who who had a good chance to go in the top three picks overall, uh, lost to Tommy John surgery, and Eric Fetty from UNLV, another top you know top tenish player, uh, lost to Tommy John surgery. And then there are some other arms who have had some questions, such as Brandon Finnegan, who's a, a TCU lefty. He was potential top ten overall guy, and he may have slipped a little bit because of some concerns about his shoulder. So the college ranks uh, up top took a hit, but generally um, still very strong positionally uh, on the pitching side. And the high school class is ridiculously deep on the pitching side. There will be you know, high school arms available in the third round, you know, 70 picks in, who are deserving of you know, a million dollars. Kids who are um, probably available after the first 100 picks going to be on the board that are signable that are deserving of a million dollars and again that just it doesn't happen usually you have a kid maybe on projection who you're willing to go that high for but not someone on present stuff that looks like a good you know a good bet and a good investment at that at that amount of money so there are years where the draft will be deep in some particular area and then there are kind of eras that will be deep in some particular era um, and as you know Jason has noted we're in an era where there's not a lot of young power hitters for instance and so with this, um, the depth of power arms in this year's draft sort of fits with what we see throughout pro baseball right now, right, where there are a ton of strikeout pitchers and velocity is going up across the sport. Is the power arms uh, uh, kind of surplus in this year's draft uh, indicative of the years that are coming as well, like our next year and the year after's drafts also looking like they might be deep? in power arms or is this really a one-year spike um well i think generally speaking power is up at the amateur level and that's you know i would say a product of there being an increased focus on radar gun reading so kids at a younger age are um you know contracting pitching coaches they are um, going to camps they're working with travel teams and they're doing everything they can to increase their velocity you know uh from weight training to working on advanced mechanics at a younger age uh, that are really geared towards those radar readings because those radar readings are what get kids one scholarships and two drafted. So I think part of this is just a, a focus in the industry to get kids throwing harder earlier. And 
we'll see, you know, over the course of the next five, 10 years, what the fallout from that is, you know, will we see an increase in injury? Will we see, um, you know, less refinement in secondary offerings at a, at an amateur level and, and more developmental focus on that at the minor league level? Um, you know, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting to watch. And I think it'll take some time to establish enough data to do probably meaningful research on that but you, you two would probably know better than i would as far as how much of a how, how large of a pool you need in order to start drawing some some useful conclusions so I, I think the big thing is that there's been a focus at the amateur level for um for the last few years at least to to really pump up velocity and, and make that a focus of development and do you get a sense of whether there's a prevailing attitude one way or the other with teams fearing to take pitchers with a high pick because because they've proven so breakable or or are teams going the other way and saying that because there are so many pitchers who break we need to stockpile them we need to acquire a lot of pitchers has it gone one way or the other in your in your mind no i think it depends on the organizational philosophy i think for the most part you have teams who recognize the risk that comes along with drafting a pitcher and it's and it basically comes down to you know, we need people to throw baseballs for our teams, you know, at the minor league level and at the major league level, we need to acquire them in some way. So whether it's in free agency or whether it's spending money on them in the draft, we have to do it. Um, There are certainly teams that prefer to take a bat when you're talking about drafting early in the draft and and investing 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 5 million, you know, they'd rather do that with a hitter. Uh, and try and find those arms later on in the draft. You certainly see that with teams, but as far as an overall strategy that avoids investing in pitching in general, I mean, I think everyone just realizes this is this is part of the risk right now. And you know, maybe maybe some teams will skew towards the bats early on when we're talking about the larger investments. But uh, I think generally everyone's just just come to the conclusion that pitchers are going to get injured, and we hope it doesn't happen too often to our guys. Mm-hmm. And I've wondered whether there's been any shift in how teams are valuing risk versus ceiling or, or certainty versus ceiling. Because I've seen a couple stories, and this is you know semi-anecdotal, but I've seen stories from uh, people with the Phillies and the Blue Jays about how they are reevaluating their their draft philosophy. Alex Anthopoulos said uh, that I'd say a big part of refining our process is we're starting to examine the level of risk we're willing to take. It doesn't mean we'll be risk averse, but maybe not take the same level of risk. And then Marty Wolver, the the Phillies scouting director, said something sort of similar uh, that he said, I think we need to try to single out some more advanced hitters and try to focus on that versus the high ceiling, what they could possibly be player, take a good look at what they are right now versus what they might be down the road. And he says he thinks that's something that's happened throughout baseball, that teams are spending a lot of money, so they'd like some return on their money. And there was there was a, a discussion about this on the most recent episode of Fringe Average between Jason and, and Mike, where Jason was sort of talking about how his own thinking on this has evolved and how if he were given the choice between a guy like Tyler Kolek, sort of the, the extremely hard-throwing but maybe, maybe riskier pitcher, and a guy like Aaron Nola, who maybe doesn't have the the ace ceiling, but but is more likely to get there. He thinks that he has become more likely to go with the NOLA type of player. Do you think that that's happened in general around baseball? Are teams doing a better job of evaluating that risk and, and factoring it into their decisions? I think teams 
in general are doing a better job of trying to find a balance between the two. I mean, certainly teams are looking for impact in the draft, right? The, you know, the obvious example is Mike Trout. If you find a Mike Trout in the draft, you know, you've helped your team for the next eight years, uh, you know, with elite level production at, at bargain prices. So, I mean, I think that's still the focus. Um, there is, you know, the way I look at it, and I think this is consistent with how a lot of teams handle this, is you you can identify sort of tiers of talent and tiers of risk, and you look for leverage points in the draft. So at what point does would the best player on the board for us be um, more likely to be a safer pick, a higher floor pick that maybe doesn't quite have the same ceiling? And then at what point does it make sense to switch back to going for a higher risk, higher reward guy? And that's really dependent on the composition of the draft class. You know, where are those strengths? Um, when I line up all my players with a price tag assigned to them, what do I see in these tiers? You know, where are my picks, first of all? Who's likely to be on the board when I'm picking? And, you know, what are the five or ten guys I'm picking for um, that, I, that I'm likely to be picking from that, I, you know, that I'm interested in? And once you do that, you can sort of identify, well, you know, it looks like the guys that we really like that are likely to be there early on are a little bit higher risk. So that means maybe for our second round and third round, we want to target someone who's got a higher floor and maybe a little bit more safety so that we're, we have some balance to our draft portfolio. You know, what you don't want to do is have a situation where you have a draft class where the first five or six, you know, picks struggle to to give you anything back. I mean, it, it's it's not that something that would destroy a farm system or anything that dramatic, but it, you know, you certainly want to have balance the same way you want to have balance in a stock portfolio. You want to make sure that you're uh, taking into account both risk and, uh, and safety to, to make sure that you're not uh, putting yourself in a situation where you have you know, sort of systemic failure. So the mantra that every baseball man will say in public is that they take the best player available, that they're not you know, necessarily going to draft uh, you know, for need. Uh, they're going to take the best player available. And presumably that would mean that if the draft is uh, deep in, in pitching, and as this one is shallow in advanced uh, college bats, uh, that they wouldn't necessarily reach for a college bat because of the scarcity. Um, is that... Is that how it works, or in a draft like this where college bats, advanced bats are are rare, are we likely to see those guys go too high? Well, I think I think you're likely to see college bats go high um, for the reason that you just stated. I think when there's a little bit more scarcity, people want to lock in that college bat when they can. And so the way that that my board kind of shakes down there. Uh, the best the best range for college bats that I see right here is sort of in the back half of the first round through the supplemental round. Uh, I think that that's a sort of a sweet spot for college bats. And then again, once you get down towards sort of like the third round, fourth round range, I think you end up um, getting into another a sweet spot as far as um, good val- getting good value for your college bats. Now, you know maybe that means that those guys get popped a little bit earlier. Let's say you're someone like the uh, Chicago Cubs and you're looking to leverage that extra pool allotment that you have. I think they have the sixth largest pool overall. Um, you know, you want you know that that's going to mean since it, there's depth on the high school arm side that the overslot guys that are going to be available later on are mo- most likely going to be high school arms. So maybe you want to save a little money, um, take a you know a bat that maybe is sixth or seventh on your board. Um, you know, maybe like a Michael Conforto or 
uh, or Pentecost, the, the Kennesaw State catcher, um, lock in some savings and then figure, I've got my college bat. I'm confident that this guy is going to be a major leaguer. He's going to give us some value. He's going to fill a hole for us. Maybe he's not a, you know, a perennial all-star candidate, but he's going to be a, a nice addition to our organization. And now I've got some money to go out there and, and take some risk on some high school power arms. So I could see something like that happening, certainly. So we'll get into to specific players and teams in, in just a moment. But could you, you know, for the benefit of people who maybe have not internalized quite how the, the current system works, can you explain the the decisions that a team at the top has to make as far as how the, the bonus pool works and how the teams with the big bonus pools have to decide, you know, how they want to allocate that money, whether they want to blow it all on the first round pick or try to spread it around. Can you, can you talk a bit about some of the, the strategic decisions that teams face? Sure. So the way the system works now is picks, um, one through what we have, we have, uh, uh, 300 and I think 317 or something like that picks in the first 10 rounds, including supplemental rounds. Uh, what major league baseball does is they, you know, line up each of those picks one through three seventeen, and then they assign a slot value for each of those picks. So the first pick overall is worth, I think, 7.9 million. The second pick is 6.8 million, uh, 5.7 million for the third and so on, all the way down to, um, about a hundred thousand dollars at the very end. Uh, in order a team, a team is able to use up to that allotted slot amount for each of their signings. Um, and then to the extent that they have savings, let's say you sign, you, you have 7.9 million for your first overall pick and you get him to sign for 5 million, that 2.9 million that you have in excess can be divvied up and, and spread amongst any of your other signings. So you can play with your draft money by getting, uh, savings in one spot and taking that over that overage and transferring it to another you know, another signee at a different point in the draft. If you don't sign someone for a slot, you you, you lose the ability completely to to use that slot money. So, um, you know, in the second round, if you had if you fail to sign your second rounder and you had nine hundred thousand dollars to spend on him, you lose that money that can't be reallocated somewhere else. So the 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 highest leverage is up top where you have you know. It, it drops from about 7.9 million for the first overall pick down to uh, 3.5 million for the sixth overall pick, and then at that point it goes down uh, incrementally at about $200,000, and then at a certain point later on it's going down about uh, $100,000, then $50,000, and so on. So the picks up top are, are highly leveraged as far as how much money you have. So you'll see teams in the top five rounds sort of weighing the benefits of, you know, do I sign a guy that's going to require close to full slot or do I sign someone who I like maybe very slightly less but's willing to sign for a million dollars cheaper and now I have a million dollars to play around with later on. The other strategic thing to quickly touch on is what you've seen a lot of teams do over the last two years is round six to ten where you maybe you're drafting, you know, kind of fringy prospects in any event rather than spending $275,000 on a fringy college guy, they're cutting deals with college seniors that have no leverage, paying them $5,000 and taking that $200,000 and using, you know, that later, either later on or for a guy that they signed early, drafted earlier in the draft, that's going to require more than the slot allotment to, uh, to sign them. So there's usually around 500, 600, 700,000, depending on at what point in the draft you're picking that you can, 
bank between that sixth and tenth round and use elsewhere if you if you go strictly with senior signs there. Mm-hmm. So how do you see that playing out for the the teams at the top this year, the Astros and the Marlins? We've seen. We've we've seen the Astros have number one picks before a couple times now, and we've seen them take different approaches. Where the first time they they went with the Carlos Correa approach of of going with a guy who wasn't necessarily at the top of most people's boards based on talent, but uh, but they were able to save some money there and then spread it around later in the draft. And then last year we saw them go the the Mark Appel route, sort of the the consensus number one or certainly top two picks and just going with the the best guy available so what do you expect them to do this year well this year to my mind there isn't an eight million dollar guy in the draft so i think they should be pretty comfortable that if they're picking through from one of the you know the three elite guys in the draft which for me is is brady aiken he's a high school lefty uh carlos rodan he's a college lefty and uh, uh in Jackson, the, the San Diego prep catcher, Alex Jackson, um, you know, between speaking with all three of those guys, they should be able to find someone who's going to sign for some sort of savings, you know, whether that's $1 million, $1.5 million, whatever it is, I would anticipate them to, to have, you know, that signing bonus play a huge role in their decision because they're going to want um, to have some of that extra money to play with. And the reason it's it's important for the Astros, and it's the same for the Marlins, is they have uh, supplemental first-round picks and then, again, an early second-round pick. And as we discussed, it's a deeper draft that's going to see some elite talent fall. You want to be in a position when you're picking in, you know, at uh, again, at 37 or 42 or 43, depending on if you're the Astros or the Marlins, to, you know, potentially have another two or three million dollars that you can spend on an elite guy that drops. So I, I, I would expect both Florida and Houston to look to uh, save a little bit of money. I don't think they're not in a position where they need to cut such a large uh, underslot deal that they, they need to go off, you know, their board. They should be able to find an elite talent, one of the top three draft talents that's willing to sign for savings. And uh, I think that, that that's how we'll see it play out. Mm-hmm. How uh, how uh, how mockable is this year's draft? Is this is this a draft that should that should have some predictability to it, or uh, given the lack of certainty even at the top, is it like every mock draft is going to be blown up within five minutes? I I I think that it's uh, personally I think it's a fool's errand to try and, and mock this draft. Um, it's 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 light on elite talent up top, but very deep on sort of second tier talent so um, especially picks like between like four and 17 you could make a case for you know 15 or 16 guys that that makes sense for a team and, and it would be defensible picks there so I think there's a, a, a good idea of who the top you know three or four guys are in the class but after that it it gets it gets broad really quickly it gets wide open so um, you know I guess if teams are, are forthcoming and tell you you know this is sort of our this is our thinking. If if these guys are on the board, the you know we're picking between these two guys. It's possible to get a sense for how things are going to go, but um, I, I'd be surprised if if really anything that anyone's mocking is is close to accurate as far as how the first round plays out. So can we go over a, a few of those top guys, the the guys that you think are in the top tier? I'm I'm curious because as someone who sort of you know at least up until right before the draft kind of follows it from afar and hears the occasional rumbling and all i was hearing was carlos rodan 
for for much of this winter and early this spring that he was clearly the top guy. And, you know, some years there's there's a Harper or a Strasburg, and it's very clear where he's going. Other years, there's some development as it gets closer to the draft and one guy overtakes another. And, and that seems to have happened to some extent with, with Brady Aiken this year. So what swung the, the balance of power between those two guys? How did Aiken overtake Rodon if he if he has? I think it's uh, it's it's twofold. One, Rodon had a really rocky start to the season. Um, he was never sort of this elite velocity guy. Uh, he had a good fastball, you know, a plus fastball, you know, sometimes plus plus fastball depending on the day. But you know, mostly he was a low nineties guy that could run it up to ninety four, ninety five. Um, and his big pitch was a slider, and it was a you know a plus plus pitch last year, the final game of the summer with the USA collegiate national team he threw against Cuba and it was an 80 pitch that night. I mean, he looked like a major leaguer that, that came down to help out the collegiate national team for an evening. Um, and that's what, you know, that's, that's what everyone was left with. And it was hard to walk away from that game and, and not think that this guy is sort of a Strasburg level talent. Um, you know, he came back in the spring and the velocity was more 87 to 90 touching 92. And the slider was, you know, a plus pitch that he wasn't commanding very well. So the, the, the stuff took a, a step back. Um, his command took a step back. And, you know, that, at first it was, well, it's, you know, cold, it's cold weather. It's a slow start to the season. Let's not read too much into it. By, you know, start number five, start number six, things weren't drastically improving. You know, people started to, just started to worry. At the same time, uh, you know, California baseball starts early. High school baseball starts early. And, Brady Aiken came out and started the season, you know, with a three mile an hour bump on his fastball. You know, his curveball jumped a half a grade and his changeup jumped a grade. Uh, the mechanics are smooth and easy. He's got, I mean, he's got a pro body with with projection to come. Um, basically, everything that you hope to see out of a high school prospect when you when you're looking at him, like, oh, this is, you know, over the next year or two, we think he can check these boxes and, and take these steps forward. I mean, it basically all happened for Aiken in the off season and there's still projection left. There's still physical projection left. There's still projection left in the stuff. So, you know, this spring he showed us, you know, low nineties fastball with great command, throwing it to both sides of the plate, elevating it when he needs to uh, plus curveball. you know, a changeup that flashes plus easy mechanics, you know, not a lot of red flags as far as, uh, you know, biomechanics are concerned. And, um, you know, and he's a lefty, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's hyperbolic to say you think of Clayton Kershaw, but it's the same type of, um, sort of front end starter kit. You know, you look at it and you say, I could see this developing into an elite major league pitcher and he's advanced for a high school arm right now. So, you know, that was the bump forward for Aiken. Rodon saw some regression and he righted the ship a little bit. Um, and it's quite possible that, uh, you know, they, he, he gets drafted, shut down and then comes back to throw in the, in the Arizona fall league and is, looks like he did last summer. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to tell without, uh, without a crystal ball, but that, that, that's sort of the reason for the flip flop up top there. And, and, and it wasn't just a flip flop where Aiken climbed from number three to number one. I mean, there's a guy who was a potential first rounder. You know, most people thought maybe mid first round, but took kind of a, a big developmental leap over the offseason. Uh-huh. And we, we talked about the importance of evaluating risk. And I think people who have studied draft picks and, and the rates at which they pan out historically 
high school pitchers are are the the least safe bet in the draft. Is is Aiken considered fairly safe at least for a, a high school pitcher though? Yeah, I think for a high school pitcher he's considered safe. But you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, there's a reason why high school pitchers tend to not go first overall, and and that's exactly it. Is it's a it's a risky proposition. Even a, a fast moving high school arm unless your name is Jose Fernandez, is likely to spend, you know, at least two and a half, three years in the minors and, you know, logs several hundred pitches uh, innings pitched. And that's just a lot of opportunity for, for little things to go wrong. And it's not necessarily, you know, a big mechanical flaw that you can spot. Sometimes it's, you know, the, the, the pitcher gets a little worn down through the season. He doesn't tell the coach and all of a sudden, you know, he ends up injuring himself because he didn't want to tell anybody that he was tiring or that his arm was sore or whatever it is. I mean, th- there are a lot of things that a team can't monitor. They can, and uh, the the longer that player's working through the minors, the more opportunity there is for something to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any tendency for teams to overreact or read too much into small samples in the spring when they're trying to separate between one guy and another who who might look fairly similar and you know one guy has a, a bad start while someone important is there watching and another guy shows a, a little more velocity in the start when someone's there watching and you kind of use that to to separate the two or is that how teams should approach this process oh no you're absolutely right and, and i'll take it a step further i mean there are there are guys who will go out and have here's a great example there's a high school uh, outfielder jaron kendall who had um, not even a strong showcase at the area code games. He had a strong game and a half at the area code games out of the four games he played and uh, looked terrible in, uh, in Jupiter for the big, the big scouting event in October. It's a big 84 team uh, wood bat tournament for high schoolers. He looked very bad there. Uh, I saw him in winter workouts. He looked very bad there. Scouts were not impressed. Scouts, you know, kind of scratching their head. You know, this guy, I wouldn't give this guy, you know, top five round money. Uh, he plays ball in Wisconsin. Obviously, that, that high school season doesn't even start until May. So he's had a handful of games here. Uh, and he's still getting, you know, second round mentions simply because at the area code games where there was a stands where there the, you know the stands were full of scouting directors you know gms cross checkers he had a game and a half where he looked like an elite talent and that was has literally been enough to carry him into you know the top two round conversation you know you, if you have a strong enough performance in front of the right eyes um you know you can basically cement yourself uh in an early round in some form you know it might be that you have to sign uh, you know, agree to sign early, or it might be that you know you have to find the right pick and the right opportunity has to come around, the right team and the right opportunity has to come around. But you're going to be on the board and you're going to be in the discussion if you have you know the right the right outing, the right day in front of the right people. Mm-hmm. And so on the the mock draft that we have up at BP right now from our friends at Perfect Game, it it goes Aiken and Radon, and then then it goes Tyler Kolek, Nick Gordon, Aaron Nola, Alex Jackson. Is there uh, any of these guys who really stands out as being the clear number three after Aiken and Radon, or is there a, a point after three or four where the talent drops off steeply? How, how, how would you rank the, the non Aiken Radon top talents there? I think, uh, I think you go Aiken Radon up top and then probably Alex Jackson would be, if you, if you were to pull the industry and, and get a look at their boards, my guess would be that Jackson is probably, uh, the third most popular name in the top three there. Um, I think Nola 
and Nick Gordon uh, also get uh, probably fairly consistent, uh, you know, top half of the top 10, top five or six picks or so uh, placement there. I would, uh, I, I think Sean Newcomb, the lefty out of Hartford, Hartford um, gets more love in the draft rooms than he does necessarily in the, in the national media. Um, he wasn't a very, he's not a very easy guy for the media to see and for the media to get comments on. So I think he flew a little bit under the radar as a small school guy. Um, and then I would say there are some high school arms like Tuki Toussaint and Grant Holmes that were sort of overshadowed by Aiken and, and Kolick this spring, but, you know, certainly have the, the stuff and the potential to go as high as the top five picks. And I wouldn't be surprised that if they're prominently placed on a number of teams boards as well. Mm-hmm. And is there anyone, you know, in the top 10 sort of range or, or the top of the first round who, who you're considerably higher on than the consensus and, and anyone that you're considerably lower on than, than the consensus? Um, I would say uh, Tyler Kolick I'm probably lower on than the reported consensus, although I think what we're going to see come out in the media over the next, you know, well, obviously over the next 24 hours, we'll see what happens. But uh, I think Kolick is lower on teams' boards than than most believe. I think a lot of people have, have a thought that Kolick is sort of a shoe in for the top, you know, one of the top three spots or certainly in the top five. And I don't think that's the case. I think this is a premium velocity arm. It's a big high school kid that regularly throws trip, you know, hits triple digits. He hit as high as 103 or 102, depending on who you're talking to, uh, this spring. But most of the time he's a one pitch pitcher Um, there's not a lot of track record. He didn't throw on the showcase circuit. You know, he didn't do travel ball. He plays in a a small Texas high school league that has pretty terrible competition, uh, you know, relatively speaking. So I think the velocity in the body has been enough to keep him sort of on team short lists. Like, Oh, we got to make sure we keep checking in on this guy, bring him in for a workout, make sure we have the right people interviewing him, talking to him, getting a sense for him and a feel for him as a player. You know, I think he's on everyone's short list. But I think what we're going to find is there's enough safety and uh, there's enough uh, a greater a, a great enough number of interesting profiles that have a little bit more track record and, and a little more um, a little less risk tied to it that you know we could see him drop down to you know the seven you know to, to Philly at seven to Colorado at eight you know that you know there's a chance he drops out of the top ten altogether and and I personally have him let's see I have him as uh as the number 11 guy as far as who i you know how much money i would give out i have him uh outside of the top 10 right now so that i'd say i'm probably lower on him than than most would expect i don't know that it's that much lower than the industry ends up but you know that that would probably be the the most obvious selection for someone i'm lower on as far as Mm -hmm. someone i'm higher on maybe michael chavis uh he's in georgia uh high school third baseman i think he's potentially the best hit tool in the draft uh, he's a little undersized, you know, five ten, five eleven, but makes just squares up the ball with regularity. He really has good plate coverage. He's a good defender, strong arm. Uh, I think he's undersold a little bit in this class because so much attention is being paid to the arms. Um, but he's, I think, uh, someone that that is worthy of top ten consideration. I'm sure he's on some teams' boards in the top ten range. Um, pr- probably not consensus, uh, but I think, can, you know. If you were to sort of pull the 
all the different media outlets that do draft coverage, he's probably more in the 20 to 25 range than the top 10 range. So I'm probably higher on him. Uh, same thing with uh, Sean Reed Foley, who's a Florida high school righty. Um, you know, I think he's generally in the, in the top 20 range. I have him closer to the top 10. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, does the does the spot where players go on on mock drafts like these and and the public industry consensus does that affect their opinions of themselves and possibly their own demands in the draft you know is it is it hard to to get a good deal on a guy who's going number three on all mock drafts is is does that inflate his sense of self-worth or do these guys get a good sense of how teams are truly valuing them just through you know conversations with with them or with their advisors yeah no that's a that's that's an excellent question and an excellent point i think uh it, it, it certainly can inflate their their sense of their self sense of value. Um, I think what you'll find with most top draft prospects is that they don't really need much of a nudge to to have an inflated sense of their value, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, this is really your, your this may be for for most of these kids their only real big bite at the apple, right? I mean, um, the numbers show us that. The majority of the kids that are selected, even the majority of the kids in you know the top 50 picks, aren't going to go on to long and fruitful major league careers. So, um, you know, they should be angling to get as as much as they can from this bonus process. Um, but you know, if you, I'm sure if you talk to Alex Jack, you know, I, I said that there isn't an eight million dollar kid in this draft. I'm sure if you talk to Brady Aiken, he disagrees. Carlos Rodon, I'm sure disagrees. <laughs> Alex Jackson dis- disagrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that's fine. I mean, I think as as long as there's a, an open uh, dialogue between the team and the players, I think these things generally end up uh, well for everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. A team says, you know, this is this is where we have you, and in my experience, this is how it works. It, it's not it's not to the scouts' advantage to play games, right? He's he's going to tell a player, this is where we value you, this is where we'd like to pick you, this is the type of money we're thinking about, and you know. Sometimes you'll get just a straight, look, I want to play baseball. I'm going to sign as long as I go somewhere in the top 15 or whatever. Sometimes you get that, and that's great. You know, if you can at least get from a player, you know, I'm not looking to be unreasonable. I just want to have, you know, an earnest discussion after the draft takes place and see, you know, be able to explain our, you know, where I'm coming from from a bonus standpoint, listen to where you're coming from, and I'm sure we'll be able to reach, an, uh, you know, uh, a mutual agreement. That's great. And as, and you know, finally, if a player says, "Look, I've got other options. I I really feel like I'm you know it's going to take you know, top five money for me to to start playing pro ball." You know, put those cards on the table right off the bat, and you're not going to have an issue. So, uh, I think communication is key. You know, technically, obviously, you're not supposed to have a pre-draft deal, but the more information that a player team can share with each other to make sure they're on the same page. Um, you know, the easier it makes things, you know, through the month of June when they're negotiating. Mm-hmm. And last question for me: I, uh, the problem that a, a lot of people have, or some people have, in in really getting interested in the draft is that it it does take a while for a lot of these guys to get to the majors, or longer than it does in some other sports. And they they figure they'll have time to get acquainted with these players at at some point while they're on the way up. But Jim Callis wrote an article today about how. At least some guys seem to be moving more quickly, getting promoted to the majors with with less minor league time. Is there anyone who stands out to you? You know, maybe one of the 
the more interesting talents who could move very quickly and and you know either make a contribution down the stretch this year or, or be up to to start the season next year say sure so i think that the obvious choice there is uh you know you think of someone like pa- uh, paco rodriguez right the, the florida draftee that the dodgers signed and put in the in the bullpen the same year last year um or it was last year or the year before i'm sorry i don't remember which but uh you have someone like uh the louisville closer nick birdie he's basically ready to to play you know major league ball right now he's got an upper 90s fastball he's got a plus plus slider uh, the command's a little erratic, but it's it's you know it's always going to be a little bit erratic. Uh, the stuff is so good, he you could slot him into a major league bullpen right now, and and uh, you know he could do damage. Uh, whether or not that happens this spring is probably more dependent upon how deep Louisville goes into the postseason. So they have super regionals next weekend. If they win there, they go to Omaha, and that's potentially you know another two weeks worth of games. Um, and then he stops throwing for a while, negotiates after being drafted, and you know a team may not want to put that stress on his arm if if he's been throwing, you know, deep into June and then shut down for a little while. You know that may impact whether or not he can actually uh, show up and, and and contribute at the major level. I'd say Birdie's the most likely, and then uh, up at the top of the draft, Aaron Nola is is an advanced command guy. He's got uh, you know three above average pitches. And a fastball slider changeup. Uh, he's you know good feel for sequencing. You know good good presence on the mound. He's comfortable. He, he's sort of battle tested in the SEC. He's three year starter, weekend starter. So uh, you know he could move very very quickly. Certainly be um, along the same lines as someone like a Michael Walker. You know he's not going to necessarily jump right to the majors, but he could probably be ready with a minimal number of minor league innings. Uh, so I'm going to eliminate handsome Monica and Max Pentecost because even an idiot like me knows them. Who's the best, who's your favorite name in this draft? Oh, well, handsome Monica was a great one. There's, um, Maverick Buffo. He's not, oh, there it is. <laughs> he, he's not going to be, uh, drafted in a signable round, but that's, that, that, that's one of my favorites. Um, trying to think who else we have. Uh, I, I think Tuki Toussaint is a is a fantastic name. I, you know, that's a name I can see in a major league rotation. Yeah. Uh, let's see. If there's there's got to be someone else who's who who jumps out. The, the, those were those were the big ones for me. It was Buffo and Monica back from when I first looked at the uh, the showcase rosters last June for Perfect Game Nationals. Those were the two that jumped out for me. Yeah. Maver- Maverick is the first name, and Buffo is the last name. Maverick Buffo. Oh, there's also Fenway Parks. Oh my gosh! You're kidding me. So he's also he's also not not likely to go in a drafting round. Yeah, Fenway Parks as well. He's in, yeah. That's tough to beat. All right. Well, uh, well, my my contribution to the the rampant baseless pre-draft speculation. A scout just texted me that he is hearing Kyle Schwarber at four. If Aiken and Rodon are already gone, so there. That's my that's my contribution to the rumor mill. Somebody told me. Somebody told me who the Astros aren't going to draft. Uh, however, uh, it's not a person who would know, and the Astros aren't going to draft uh, seven billion out of the seven billion and one human beings alive. So it's not very useful information. <laughs> All right. Well, if you thought that Nick was thorough in audio form, then you should see him in written form. Uh, go to Baseball Prospectus. At the top of the page, you will see the 2014 Draft Index by Nick Valeris. 
It contains links to everything Nick has produced for the site over the past months. And as mentioned, you can hear him today on, on MLB Network Radio's coverage of the draft, which starts at 7, or I guess the, the coverage on MLB Network starts at, at 6 this evening, and the draft itself starts at 7, and then the uh, later rounds start on Friday afternoon and Saturday afternoon. But you can follow along with Nick on Twitter at Nick J. Falaris, F-A-L-E-R-I-S. You can also find him chatting at BP, even if you're not a subscriber. And his chat starts at 2 p.m. Eastern, but will probably continue throughout the day. And uh, we will likely talk to him again tomorrow to talk about how the first round went, if he is still conscious and, and able to put sentences together at that point. So thank you very much, Nick. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. It was fun. All right. Please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to BaseballReference.com, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And we will be back tomorrow. I said Strasbourg. Weird. So I want to... (laughs) Strasbourg. (laughs) That's weird, too. (laughs) Was that weird? (laughs) Strasbourg. (laughs) Was that weird? What what was the you need to say the whole con I mean it I don't sounds, sounds I said, very weird when you're out of context. I don't know. I said Strasbourg, I think. Okay, um, yeah. So, so just I mean you've already you've said Strasbourg four times. Now tell me one more time. What 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 did we just do? What? Just then, what did what what were we just doing? We were recording me saying Strasbourg. We were doing what? <laughs> Strasbourg. <laughs> Jeez, you're getting worse. You Harper, know, also- Harper and Strasbourg. Harper and Strasburg. Nope, I did it again. (laughs) You also mispronounced your name at the beginning. Yes, I did. (laughs) Bedlinburg. Okay. So long. Bye-bye.